Section 2 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 19. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 19. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section Number 2. The Prodigal Son from tales of the borders by john mckay wilson in introduction there's no reason why we should refuse a good thing when it is thrown in our way some weeks ago a scotch gentleman put into our hands an edinburgh edition of tales of the borders by the late john mckay wilson it is at Reisure, full of sweet and excellent things the tales are historical traditionary and imaginative of a very high order of talent and bearing the impress of superior genius and we believe that we shall be giving our readers choice literary entertainment by transferring one of them occasionally to the rover perhaps one in each number until we have given all those which we can accommodate to our purpose a few indeed owing to their length we shall be obliged to overlook Notwithstanding this, however, there is a mine of wealth left, and we are confident that what we extract will be thankfully received by our patrons. No American edition of Mr. Wilson's works has ever appeared, but very few of his tales have ever found their way into the publications of this country. It is singular that so much merit and genius has been overlooked, while, for the last five years, our presses have been groaning under the accumulated weight of foreign trash that has been poured in upon us until we are fairly glutted to satiety with the monstrous doses that we have been forced to swallow why our enterprising publishers have given no thought to the genius of john mckay wilson is a mystery we have no clue to unfathom yet so it is and there are moreover but a very few copies of English or Scotch editions of his works to be found in the country. Who is John McKay Wilson? asked a friend the other day, and he thought he knew everybody. I, who was he? Mary, a poor Scotchman, but little known to us, but we dare say much beloved by his countrymen. Come, at any rate, we will introduce him to our readers. They, of course, will to their friends, and by the time we shall have done with him, he will be as familiar to us as a brother. John McKay Wilson was born at Berwick-on-Tweed in the year 1804, and died October 2nd, 1835, at the age of 31, ere his son had gained his meridian splendor. His early days were spent in peace and happiness under his paternal roof and were marked by a kind of native thirst after knowledge. His tasks, when at school, were a mere pastime and pleasure to him. When he arrived at those years when young men make choice of a profession in life, he fixed upon that of a printer. This threw him into a situation where he had an opportunity of drinking at the streams of human knowledge that passed by him. Naturally fond of literary pursuits, he soon exhausted his scanty means of gratifying his taste in Berwick-on-Tweed, and leaving the home of his childhood and the scenes of his early days, 
his aspiring spirit carried him to london to quench his thirst for knowledge and for fame at those deeper and purer streams that flow so copiously in the british metropolis but like many an aspiring and inexperienced youth he did not seem to calculate on the fact that those streams which in their warm fancy heal disease and soften pain are within doors which golden keys alone can open difficulties and hardships not a few pressed upon him and some of the most touching descriptions in the border tales of sufferings endured by the aspirant for fame were actually endured by himself and often amid the wealth and gaiety of london did he wander homeless and friendless but all the waters of affliction through which he passed could not repress the ardour of his spirit or quench his thirst for fame far in the distance of years and through a rugged and difficult pathway where many a storm raged and many a dark and heavy cloud floated he looked steadily onward to the object of his ambition despair seemed an entire stranger to him and the strength of his own mind stayed him amid darkness and amid tempests disappointment and poverty did indeed drive him away from the british metropolis and he was forced to seek in the provinces what he could not find there nor did he do so in vain for as the public prince often stated his eloquence was admired and his toils were softened by the approbation of thousands of his countrymen but amid the adulation that he met with stern penury was still his companion if he was reaping a golden harvest of opinions it was often with him as it had been with many illustrious literary men before him he had scarcely wherewithal to satisfy the cravings of nature this did indeed make inroad upon his constitution and sowed the seeds of that disease which at last carried him away from us but could not check the flights of his spirit onward to happier and more prosperous days and though the darkness which hung around him seemed to move but tardily away it did pass and the sun of prosperity shot out from amidst it and promised a rich reward for his literary privations and toils but alas how uncertain are all earthly things scarcely had that sun burst through the cloud which had so long concealed it scarcely had his bosom been warmed with this hope and scarcely had he prostrated his antagonist privation when death laid his arrest upon him and terminated forever all his earthly enterprises in eighteen twenty nine he wrote at the suggestion of a gentleman of high literary eminence in edinburgh a melodrama entitled the gowry conspiracy the favorable reception which this piece met with upon the stage prompted him to write two more dramatic compositions which were announced by the names of the highland widow and margaret of anjou he finished at the same period the sojourner a poem of considerable length in the spenserian stanza but not being able to meet with a publisher he commenced writing lectures on poetry 
with biographical and individual sketches which he completed in three manuscript volumes the lectures he continued to deliver with various success in the principal towns of scotland and england till about eighteen thirty two he rested from his wanderings in his native village among his friends and early associates in consequence of being invited to become editor of the berwick advertiser a provincial newspaper here his employment was congenial to his taste he threw his whole soul into his work and lent his unwearied efforts to promote what he considered his country's weal his spirit flashed with indignation at the thought either of public or of private oppression and he sought with warmest zeal to advance the interest of his native place but amid his labors as an editor his spirit still delighted to dwell in the fields of literature and the matter of the journal was often diversified by his own poetical and literary effusions in eighteen thirty two he published a poem entitled the enthusiast with other poetical pieces regarding which the public at once pronounced a favorable opinion but that which wafted his fame through the length and breadth of his native land was his border tales it was from there too that he and his friends saw a prospect of a reward for his toils their circulation was beyond even his own most sanguine expectations and the remuneration from them such as would soon have placed him in independent circumstances but the scene which was thus opened before him has been blighted and from the high place which he had gained in the estimation of his countrymen from the caresses of friends and from the reproach of foes he now lies where the wicked cease from troubling and where the weary are at rest and now that we have given our readers some account of a man from whose productions they may hereafter glean much gratification an account of him that we know will be interesting to all we will open the series with the prodigal son from tales of the borders by john mackay wilson the early sun was melting away the coronets of gray clouds on the brows of the mountains and the lark as if proud of its plumage and surveying itself in an illuminated mirror caroled over the bright water of keswick when two strangers met upon upon the side of the lofty skiddow each carried a small bag and a hammer betokening that their common errand was to search for objects of geological interest the one appeared about fifty the other some twenty years younger there is something in the solitude of the everlasting hills which makes men who are strangers to each other despise the ceremonious introductions of the drawing-room so was it with our geologists their place of meeting their common pursuit produced an instantaneous familiarity they spent the day and dined on the mountain-side together they shared the contents of their flasks with each other and ere they began to descend the hill they felt the one toward the other as though they had been old friends they had begun to take the road toward keswick when the elder said to the younger 
my meeting with you today recalls to my recollection a singular meeting which took place between a friend of mine and a stranger about seven years ago upon the same mountain but sir i will relate to you the circumstances connected with it and they might be called the history of the prodigal son he paused for a few moments and proceeded as follows about thirty years ago a mr fenwick was possessed of property in bambrowshire worth about three hundred per annum he had married while young and seven fair children cheered the hearth of a glad father and a happy mother many years of joy and of peace had flown over them when death visited their domestic circle and passed his lay hand over the cheek of their first-born and for five successive years as their children opened into manhood and womanhood the unwelcome visitor entered their dwelling till of their little flock there was but one the youngest left and oh sir in the leaving of that one lay the cruelty of death to have taken him too would have been an act of mercy his name was edward and the love the fondness and the care which his parents had borne for all their children were concentrated on him his father whose soul was stricken with affliction yielded to his every wish and his poor mother would not permit the winds of heaven to visit his cheek too roughly but you shall hear how cruelly he repaid her love how murderously he returned their kindness he was headstrong and wayward and though the still small voice of affection was never wholly silent in his breast it was stifled by the storm of his passions and his propensities his first manifestation of open viciousness was a delight in the brutal practice of cockfighting and he became a constant attender at every main that took place in northumberland he was an habitual better and his losses were frequent but high there too his father partly through fear and partly from a too tender affection had supplied him with money a main was to take place in the neighbourhood of morpeth and he was present two noble birds were disfigured the savage instruments of death were fixed upon them and they were pitted against each other a hundred to one on the grey shouted fenwick done four guineas replied another done four guineas done repeated the prodigal and at the next moment the grey lay dead on the ground pierced through the skull with the spur of the other he rushed out of the cockpit i shall expect payment to-morrow fenwick cried the other the prodigal mounted his horse and rode homeward with the fury of a madman kind as his father was and had been he feared to meet him or tell him the amount of his loss his mother perceived his agony and strove to soothe him what is it that troubles thee my bird inquired she come tell thy mother darling with an oath he cursed the mention of birds and threatened to destroy himself oh edward love cried she thou wilt kill thy poor mother what can i do for thee do for me he exclaimed wildly do for me mother 
Give me a hundred pounds, or my heart's blood shall flow at your feet. Child, child, said she, thou hast been at thy black trade of betting again. Thou wilt ruin thy father, Edward, and break thy mother's heart. But give me thy hand, on dear. Thou thou'lt bet no more, and I'll get thy father to give thee the money. My father must not know, he exclaimed. I will rather die. Love, love, repelled she. But without asking thy father, where could I get thee a hundred pounds? You have some money, mother, added he, and you have trinkets, jewelry. He gasped and hid his face as he spoke. Thou shalt have them, thou shalt have them, child, said she, and all the money that thy mother has. Only say thou wilt bet no more. Dost thou promise, Edward? Oh, dost thou promise thy poor mother this? Yes, yes, he cried, and he burst into tears as he spoke. He received the money and the trinkets, which his mother had not worn for thirty years, and hurried from the house, and with them discharged a portion of his dishonorable debt. He, however, did bet again, and I might tell you how he became a horse racer also, but you shall hear that too. He was now about two and twenty, and for several years he had been acquainted with Eleanor Robinson, a fair being, made up of gentleness and love, if ever woman was. She was an orphan, and had a fortune at her own disposal of three thousand pounds. Her friends had often warned her against the dangerous habits of Edward Fenwick, but she had given him her young heart. To him she had plighted her first vow, and though she beheld his follies, she trusted that time and affection would wean him from them, and, with a heart full of hope and love, she bestowed on him her hand and fortune. Poor Eleanor, her hopes were vain, her love unworthily bestowed. Marriage produced no change in the habits of the prodigal son and thoughtless husband. For weeks he was absent from his own house, bedding and carousing with his companions of the turf while one vice led the way to another, and by almost imperceptible degrees he unconsciously sunk into all the habits of a profligate. It was about four years after his marriage, when, according to his custom, he took leave of his wife for a few days, to attend the meeting at Doncaster. "'Good-bye, Eleanor, dear,' said he gaily, as he rose to depart, and kissed her cheek. I shall be back within five days. Well, Edward, she said tenderly, if you will go, you must. But think of me, and think of these our little ones. And with a tear in her eye, she desired a lovely boy and girl to kiss their father. Now think of us, Edward, she added, and do not bet, dearest, do not bet. Nonsense, duck, nonsense, said he. Did you ever see me lose? Do you suppose that Ned Fenwick is not wide awake? I know my horse and its rider, too. Barrymore's Highlander can distance everything, but if it could not, I have it from a sure hand. The other horses are all safe. Do you understand that, eh? No, I do not understand it, Edward, nor do I wish to understand it, added she. But, dearest, as you love me, as you love our children, risk nothing. 
love you. Little gypsy, you know I'd die for you, said he. And with all his sins, the prodigal spoke the truth. Come now, kiss me again, my dear. No long faces. Don't take a leaf out of my old mother's book. You know the saying, never venture, never win. Faint heart, never won fair lady. Goodbye, my love. Bye, Ned. Goodbye, mother's darling, said he, addressing the children as he left the house. He reached Doncaster. He had paid his guinea for admission to the bedding rooms. He had whispered with and slipped a fee to all the shriveled skin and bone, half-melted little mannequins called jockeys to ascertain the secrets of their horses. All safe, said the prodigal to himself, rejoicing in his heart. The great day of the festival, the important St. Leger, arrived. Hundreds were ready to back Highlander against the field. Among them was Edward Fenwick. He would take any odds. He did take them. He staked his all. A thousand to five hundred on Highlander against the field, he cried, as he stood near a betting post. Done, shouted a mustachioed peer of the realm, in a barouche by his side. Done, cried Fenwick. For the double, if you like, my lord. Done, added the peer, and I'll treble it if you dare. Done, rejoined the prodigal, in the confidence and excitement of the moment. Done, my lord. The eventful hour arrived. There was not a false start. The horses took the ground beautifully. Highlander led the way at his ease, and his rider, in a tartan jacket and mazarine cap, looked confident. Fenwick stood near the winning post, grasping the rails with his hands. He was still confident, but he could not chase the admonition of his wife from his mind. The horses were not to be seen. His very soul became like a solid and sharp-edged substance within his breast. Of the twenty horses that started, four again appeared in sight. The tartan yet! The tartan yet! shouted the crowd. Fenwick raised his eyes. He was blind with anxiety. He could not discern them. Still he heard the cry of, The Tartan! The Tartan! And his heart sprung to his mouth. Well done, Orange! The Orange will have it! was the next cry. He again looked up, but he was more blind than before. Beautiful! Beautiful! Go it, Tartan! Well done, Orange! shouted the spectators. A noble race, neck and neck! Six to five on the Orange! He became almost deaf as well as blind. Now for it! Now for it! It won't do, Tartan! Hurrah! Hurrah! Orange has it! Liar! exclaimed Fenwick, starting as if from a trance and grasping the spectator who stood next to him by the throat. I am not ruined! In a moment he dropped his hands by his side. He leaned over the railing and gazed vacantly on the ground. His flesh writhed, and his soul groaned in agony. Eleanor, my poor Eleanor, cried the prodigal. The crowd hurried toward the winning post. He was left alone. The peer with whom he had betted came behind him. He touched him on the shoulder with his whip. Well, sir, said he, you have lost it. Fenwick gazed on him with a look of fury and despair and repeated, Lost it? I am ruined, soul and body. Wife and children ruined. Well, Mr. Fenwick, said the sporting peer, I suppose, if that be the case, you won't come to Doncaster again in a hurry. 
but my settling day is to-morrow you know i keep sharp accounts and if you have not the ready i shall expect an equivalent you understand me so saying he rode off leaving the prodigal to commit suicide if he chose it is enough for me to tell you that in his madness and misery and from the influence of what he called his sense of honor he gave the winner a bill for the money payable at sight my feelings will not permit me to tell you how the poor infatuated madman more than once made attempts upon his own life but the latent love of his wife and of his children prevailed over the rash thought and in a state bordering on insanity he presented himself before the beings he had so deeply injured i might describe to you how poor eleanor was sitting in their little parlor with her boy upon a stool by her side and her little girl on her knee telling them fondly that their father would be home soon and anon singing to them when the door opened and the guilty father entered his eyes rolling with the wildness of despair and the cold sweat standing upon his pale face eleanor eleanor he cried as he flung himself upon a sofa she placed her little daughter on the floor she flew toward him my edward oh my edward she cried what is it love something troubles you curse me eleanor exclaimed the wretched prodigal i have ruined you i have ruined my children i am lost for ever no my husband exclaimed the best of wives your eleanor will not curse you tell me the worst and i will bear it cheerfully bear it for my edward's sake you will not you cannot cried he i have sinned against you as never man sinned against woman oh if you would spit upon the very ground where i tread i would feel it as an alleviation of my sufferings but your sympathy your affection makes my very soul destroy itself eleanor eleanor if you have mercy hate me tell me show me that you do oh edward she said imploringly was it thus when your eleanor spurned every offer for your sake when you pledged to her everlasting love she has none but you and can you speak thus oh husband if you will forsake me forsake not my poor children tell me only tell me the worst and i will rejoice to endure it with my edward then cried fedwick if you will add to my misery by professing to love a wretch like me know you are a beggar and i have made you one now can you share beggary with me she repeated the word beggary she clasped her hands together for a few moments she stood in silent anguish her bosom heaved the tears gushed forth she flung her arms around her husband's neck yes she cried i can meet even beggary with my edward oh heaven cried the prodigal would that the earth would swallow me i cannot stand this i will not dwell upon the endeavors of the fond forgiving wife to soothe and to comfort her unworthy husband nor yet will i describe to you the anguish of the prodigal's father and of his mother when they heard the extent of his folly and of his guilt already he had cost the old man much and with a heavy and sorrowful heart 
he proceeded to his son's house to comfort his daughter-in-law when he entered she was endeavoring to cheer her husband with a tune upon the harpsichord though heaven knows there was no music in her breast save that of love enduring love well edward said the old man as he took a seat what is this that thou hast done now the prodigal was silent edward continued the gray-haired parent i have had deaths in my family many deaths and thou knowest it but i have never had to blush for a child but thee i have felt sorrow but thou hast added shame to sorrow oh father cried eleanor imploringly do not upbraid my poor husband the old man wept he pressed her hand and with a groan said i am ashamed that thou shouldst call me father sweetest but if thou canst forgive him i should he is all that is left me all that the hand of death has spared me in this world yet eleanor his conduct is a living death to me it is worse than all that i have suffered when affliction pressed heavily upon me and year after year i followed my dear children to the grave my neighbors sympathized with me they mingled their tears with mine but now child oh now i am ashamed to hold up my head among them o oh, edward man if thou hast no regard for thy father or thy heart-broken mother hast thou no affection for thy poor wife canst thou bring her and thy helpless children to ruin but that i may say thou hast done already son son if thou wilt murder thy parents hast thou no mercy for thine own flesh and blood wilt thou destroy thine own offspring o oh, edward if there be any sin that i repent upon my death-bed it will be that i have been a too indulgent father to thee that i am the author of thy crimes no father no cried the prodigal my sins are my own spurn me cast me off disown me forever it is all i ask of you you despise me hate me too and i will be less miserable oh edward said the old man thou art a father but little dost thou know a father's heart disown thee cast thee off sayest thou as soon could the graves of thy brothers give up their dead never edward never o son wouldst thou but reform thy ways wouldst thou but become a husband worthy of our dear eleanor and after all the suffering thou hast brought upon her and the shame thou hast brought upon thy family i would part with my last shilling for thee edward though i should go into the workhouse myself you are affected sir i will not harrow up your feelings by further describing the interview between the father and his son the misery of the prodigal was remorse not penitence it is sufficient for me to say that the old man took a heavy mortgage on his property and edward fenwick commenced business as a wine and spirit merchant in newcastle but sir he did not attend upon business and i need not tell you that such being the case business was too proud a customer to attend upon 
neither did he forsake his old habits and within two years he became involved deeply involved already to sustain his tottering credit his father had been brought to the verge of ruin during his residence in bambrowshire he had become acquainted with many individuals carrying on a contraband trade with holland to amend his desperate fortunes he recklessly embarked in it in order to obtain a part in the ownership of a luger he used his father's name this was the crowning evil in the prodigal's drama he made the voyage himself they were pursued and overtaken when attempting to effect a landing near the coquet he escaped but the papers of the vessel bespoke her as being chiefly the property of his father need i tell you that this was a finishing blow to the old man edward fenwick had ruined his wife and family he had brought ruin upon his father and was himself a fugitive he was pursued by the law he fled from them and he would have fled from their remembrance if he could it was now sir that the wrath of heaven was showered upon the head and began to touch the heart of the prodigal like cain he was a fugitive and a vagabond on the face of the earth for many months he wandered in a distant part of the country his body was emaciated and clothed with rags and hunger preyed upon his very heart-strings it is a vulgar thing sir to talk of hunger but they have never felt it know not what it means he was fainting by the wayside his teeth were grating together the tears were rolling down his cheeks the servants of my father's house he cried have bread enough and to spare while i perish with hunger and continuing the language of the prodigal in the scriptures he said i will arise and go unto my father and say i have sinned against heaven and in thy sight with a slow and tottering step he arose to proceed on his journey to his father's house a month had passed for every day he made less progress ere the home of his infancy appeared in sight it was noon and when he saw it he sat down in a little wood by a hillside and wept until it had become dusk for he was ashamed of his rags he drew near the house, but none came forth to welcome him. A stranger came from one of the outhouses and inquired, What dost thou want, man? Mr. Fenwick, feebly answered the prodigal. Why, nobody lives there, said the other, and old Fenwick died in Morpeth jail. Meyer then three months in. Died in Morpeth jail, groaned the miserable fiend and fell against the door of the house that had been his father's. "'I tell ye, ye cannot get in there,' continued the other. "'Sir,' replied Edward, "'pity me. Oh, and tell me, is not Mrs. Fenwick here, or her daughter-in-law?' "'I know not about them,' said the stranger. "'I'm put in charge here by the trustees.' Want and misery kindled all their fires in the breast of the fugitive. He groaned, and partly from exhaustion, partly from agony, sank upon the ground. The other lifted him to a shed, where cattle were wont to be fed. His lips were parched, his languid eyes rolled vacantly. Water, give me water, he muttered in a feeble voice, and a cup of water was brought to him. 
he gazed wistfully in the face of the person who stood over him he would have asked for bread but in the midst of his sufferings pride was yet strong in his heart and he could not the stranger however was not wholly destitute of humanity poor wretch said he ye look very fatigued do ye think ye could eat a bit of bread if i will give it to thee tears gathered in the lustrous eyes of the prodigal but he could not speak the stranger left him and returning placed a piece of coarse bread in his hand he ate a morsel but his very soul was sick and his heart loathed to receive the food for lack of which he was perishing vain sir were the inquiries after his wife his children and his mother all that he could learn was that they had kept their sorrow and their shame to themselves and had left northumberland together but where none knew he also learned that it was understood among his acquaintances that he had put a period to his existence and that this belief was entertained by his family months of wretchedness followed and fenwick in despair enlisted into a foot regiment which within twelve months was ordered to embark for egypt at that period the british were anxious to hide the remembrance of their unsuccessful attack upon cadiz and resolved to wrench the ancient kingdom of the pharaohs from the grasp of the proud armies of napoleon the cabinet therefore on the surrender of malta having seconded the views of sir ralph abercrombie several transports were fitted out to join the squadron under lord keith in one of these transports the penitent prodigal embarked you are too young to remember it sir but at that period a love of country was more widely than ever becoming the ruling passion of every man in britain and with all his sins his follies and his miseries such a feeling glowed in the breast of edward fenwick he was weary of existence and he longed to listen to the neighing of the war-horse and the shout of its rider and as they might rush on the invulnerable phalanx and its breastwork of bayonets to mingle in the ranks of heroes and rather than pine in inglorious grief to sell his life for the welfare of his country or like the gallant graham amidst the din of war and the confusion of glory to forget his sorrows the regiment to which he belonged joined the main army off the bay of marmaris and was the first that with the gallant moor at its head on the memorable seventh of march raised the shout of victory on the shores of abukir in the moment of victory fenwick fell wounded on the field and his comrades in their triumph passed over him he had some skill in surgery and he was enabled to bind up his wound he was fainting upon the burning sand and he was creeping among the bodies of the slain for a drop of moisture to cool his parched tongue when he perceived a small bottle in the hands of a dead officer it was half filled with wine he eagerly raised it to his lips englishman cried a feeble voice for the love of heaven give me one drop only one or i die he looked around a french officer apparently in the agonies of death was vainly endeavouring to raise himself on his side and stretching his hand toward him why should i live cried the wretched prodigal take it take it 
and live if you desire life. He raised the wounded Frenchman's head from the sand. He placed the bottle to his lips. He untied his sash and bound up his wounds. They were conveyed from the field together. Fenwick was unable to follow the army, and he was disabled from continuing in the service. The French officer recovered, and he was grateful for the poor service that had been rendered to him. And previous to his being sent off with other prisoners, he gave a present of a thousand francs to the joyless being, whom he called his deliverer. I have told you that Fenwick had some skill in surgery. He had studied some years for the medical profession, but abandoned it for the turf and its vices. He proceeded to Alexandria, where he began to practice as a surgeon, and, among an ignorant people, gained reputation. Many years passed, and he had acquired it, if not riches, at least an independency. Repentance also had penetrated his soul. He had inquired long and anxiously after his family. He had but few other relatives, and to all of them he had anxiously written, imploring them to acquaint him with the residence of the beings whom he had brought to ruin, but whom he still loved. Some returned no answer to his applications, and others only said that they knew nothing of his wife, of his mother, or of his children, nor whether they yet lived. All they knew was that they had endeavored to hide the shame he had brought upon them from the world. These words were daggers to his bruised spirit, but he knew he deserved them, and he prayed that heaven would grant him the consolation and the mercy that was denied him on earth. Somewhat more than seven years ago, he returned to his native country, and he was wandering on the very mountain where, today, I met you when he entered into conversation with a youth apparently about three or four and twenty years of age, and they spent the day together as we have done. Fenwick was lodging in Keswick, and as, toward evening, they proceeded along the road together, they were overtaken by a storm. You must accompany me home, said the young man, until the storm has passed. My mother's house is at hand and he conducted him to yonder lovely cottage, whose white walls you perceive peering through the trees by the waterside. It was dusk when the youth ushered him into a little parlor where two ladies sat. The one appeared about forty, the other three score and ten. They welcomed the stranger graciously. He ascertained that they let out the rooms of their cottage to visitors to the lakes during the summer season. He expressed a wish to become their lodger, and made some observations on the beauty of the situation. Yes, sir, said the younger lady. The situation is, indeed, beautiful. But I have seen it when the water and the mountains around it could impart no charm to its dwellers. Providence has, indeed, been kind to us, and our lodgings have seldom been empty. But, sir, when we entered it, it was a sad house indeed. My poor mother-in-law and myself had experienced many sorrows. Yet my poor fatherless children, for I might call them fatherless, and she wept as she spoke, with their innocent prattle, soothed our affliction. But my little Eleanor, who was loved by everyone, began to droop day by day. 
It was a winter night. The snow was on the ground. I heard my little darling give a deep sigh upon my bosom. I started up. I called to my poor mother. She brought a light to the bedside, and I found my sweet child dead upon my breast. It was a long and sad night. As we sat by the dead body of my Eleanor, with no one near us, and after she was buried, my poor Edward there, as he sat by our side, at night, would draw forward to his knee the stool on which his sister sat, while his grandmother would glance at him fondly, and push aside the stool with her foot, that I might not see it. But I saw it all. The twilight had deepened in the little parlor, and its inmates could not perfectly distinguish the features of each other. But, as the lady spoke, the soul of Edward Fenwick glowed within him. His heart throbbed. His breathing became thick. The sweat burst upon his brow. Pardon me, lady, he cried in agony. But, oh, tell me your name. Fenwick, sir. Eleanor! My injured Eleanor! he exclaimed, finding himself at her feet. I am Edward, your guilty husband. Mother, can you forgive me? My son, my son, intercede for your guilty father. Ah, sir, there needed no intercession. Their arms were around his neck. The prodigal was forgiven. Behold, yonder from the cottage comes the mother, the wife and the son of whom I have spoken. I will introduce you to them. You shall witness the happiness and penitence of the prodigal. You must stop with me. Tonight, start not. Sir, I am Edward Fenwick, the prodigal son. End of section 2. Recording by April 6090.